Amen. Morning, everybody. Hey, good to see everybody here. Welcome to all those that are online. Great to have you with us. Um, I love how each new week brings some new faces or rather old new faces back into our church building. There's some folk here today that I haven't seen for over a year, and that just has, has not been lacquer. So welcome to all those that are, are here for the first time in a long time again. Great to have you with us. Last Monday, so six days ago, we had a serious feast at our home. Um, well, we had a feast at our home. Serious, I don't know, maybe you might not call it serious in your terms, but we had a feast at our home. Went to Mdeni Meats. Um, this is, I don't worry, I don't get any commission for us. Went to Mdeni Meats, bought a bunch of mutton chops, bit of chicken, came home, put it on the weeba. I'm sure there was other food in the mix as well, but I can't remember that food. But those are the two main parts. Um, had some precious people around the table, my two daughters and my wife and Bongi and um, also Tristan, one of my daughter's boyfriends. And we sat and feasted. It was my 51st birthday. And we had... Old and decrepit, but I loved the feast. It was absolutely awesome. I loved that feast. Folks, you won't get far in Scripture before you start running into a major theme around the idea of feasts. Feasts are everywhere in Scripture. I think we all agree that feasts are great. Christmas meals come to mind for me at my mom's place or my brother. Both of them are really great cooks. They, they come to, those moments come to mind for me immediately. Great feasts. Um, when we have a birthday last week in our house and my daughter this coming week, generally we aim to provide their favorite meal just to make that moment a little bit more special, a little bit more marked. Um, and as I think about it, a feast needs a couple of important dynamics in order for it to reach the heart of awesomeness that we all hope a feast does. Right? So obviously it starts off with good food. That's a non-negotiable. When you, when you sit down for a feast, you need to look at what on the, what's on the table for you. It needs to be like a little bit of a, oh, that looks nice. You know, a little bit of excitement about it. Good food. The right people need to be around the table with you. People that you can relax with. People that you can laugh with. People that have walked something of a journey with you. People that you can have tough conversations with. People that know you and yet love you. Know your highs and lows and know, love you. Those, those kind of people around the table in order for it to be a good feast. There's two that are probably more my personal preferences, but I think that a good feast must always have leftovers for the next day or two. Amen? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced on that. If it's a meal that I finish in one sitting, I'm like, man, what a pity. I need to get up the next morning and have a cold chop. I don't know. That's just me, all right? Also, mashed potatoes, I think, is pretty much a non-negotiable as well. Mashed potatoes. But it doesn't go all that well with seafood, unfortunately. But I love that. And then the last little dynamic that I think makes a, a feast great is obviously the occasion that we're celebrating makes it a... It makes it a unique experience, brings an element of specialness to make it a great feast. And I love it when that whole list comes together and we can sit and feast together. I love those moments. 
And maybe that's why feasts are central to some of the most significant moments in Scripture. Significant moments are tied often to feasts. So there's the Passover. Passover pictures the salvation that we can know through God. Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrates the journey of God's people as they left Egypt and made their way through the promised land. They had to leave Egypt, Egypt quick, quickly, so quickly that they had to have unleavened bread. But there was a feast attached to it. First fruits, first of three feasts to thank God for His provision. Pentecost, second of those three feasts, 50 days later. Feast of Trumpets, get this one. Feast of Trumpets, a feast that celebrates rest. Oh, feast that celebrates rest. I don't know what trumpets and rest have to do with each other, but that's one of the feasts. Feast of Tabernacles, um, seven days of feasting. Feast of Tabernacles, seven days of feasting. And that's my biblical basis for leftovers, why you should have leftovers for the day after. Seven days of feasting, and, then, and the whole idea of Feast of Tabernacles was to remember that God is with us, tabernacling with us. Go to the New Testament again, centrality of feasts or important feasts. Communion is meant to be shared around a feast. Not just one of those little things that we hand out by, by necessity nowadays. It was meant to be around a feast. The bread and the, and, and the wine was to commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the final banquet, that day when we all get to heaven one day and we see Christ face to face. The final banquet is how it's spoken of in Revelation 19 verse 9. But I actually think the best description of that moment is found in Isaiah 25, going back to the Old Testament. Listen to this description of that moment. On this mountain, okay, symbolic, symbolic always, the mountain of God is symbolic of the presence of God. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, finest of wines. On this mountain, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth, a great glorious moment, the culmination of our, our existence in heaven. But again, it seems that even that moment, this epic moment of history, the, the final point is, of history as we step into heaven, is more fully and effectively described with a reference to a feast. So no doubt, folk, let's get this out the way right at the start. No doubt, feasting is completely entrenched in Scripture. Here's the thing, though. The very nature of feasting is that it's meant to be for special occasions only. Isn't that obvious? It's the high points of life. It's those significant moments, those epic moments. It's the, it's the exceptional occasions that deserve a feast. And so wedding days generally have a feast attached to them. If I do baby dedications at a home, often there's food around. It's epic moments like that that deserve a feast. And so when feasting becomes the norm, when feasting becomes a way of life, an expectancy rather than an exception, 
when it becomes a habit, a whole different picture emerges from the pages of Scripture, and that horrible word, gluttony, suddenly lands on our table. Gluttony is what happens when we feast too much. Let's allow Scripture to paint a bit of a picture for us. Proverbs 23, verse 20 to 21. And, and it's a book of, of wisdom. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Speaks wisdom to us rather than hardcore principles. And so the wisdom here is, do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Gluttony definitely doesn't get a good rap, rap in Scripture. One of the major reasons, Sodom, and you remember the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, those two mega cities that were wiped from the face of the earth because of their sin. But one of the major reasons Sodom had God's judgment come down so heavily on her as a city is listed as gluttony. Ezekiel 16.49, now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, gluttonous, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor or needy. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, we jump to the New Testament. We read of one of those moments when those Pharisees are trying their utmost to discredit Jesus, to take his influence away from them, to take his, his followers away from him, to, to wreck his ministry. They're trying their best to do that. And of everything horrible they could have said about Jesus, gluttony is the first thing they accuse him of. Look at this glutton and drunkard. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in that moment... You get just an inkling, a little bit of a sense, that in that day and age, gluttony had a different feel about it than it does today. That that was the major, the primary weapon in their arsenal that they could throw against Jesus is quite a telling thing. Jump forward a couple of centuries, all the way to the third century A.D., a bunch of deeply spiritual people lived in the deserts of Egypt. Basically, the first, uh, some of the first monastery kind of living. Um, lived in the, in the deserts of Egypt. They became known as the Desert Fathers, great thinkers, great meditators of God. And one of the ways you might have heard about them, or at least of their work, is if you've heard about the seven deadly sins. There's actually a movie about that a couple of years ago. Seven deadly sins. These are the fundamental sins, they say, according to them. It's not a biblical list. But they say these are the most fundamental sins that shape most of the patterns in our world. They give birth to the many horrible expressions of sin that we've grown to hate or become victims of. These are the sins that are kind of the foundational blocks of all the sins that we experience. So interestingly enough, gluttony is one of them. So there's lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. And I wonder just for a moment, would you place gluttony as one of the worst sins that this world faces? 
in a day and age of, you know, slavery, in a day and age of all kinds of horrific sins, would you place gluttony as one of the top seven? Kind of seems to jar with us nowadays, doesn't it? Sounds like an echo from a world long ago. But I wonder who's right. Those monks that lived in the desert in Egypt or us in our sophisticated modern world around the issue of gluttony. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, once wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. In some senses, it's a, it's a very strange little book, and you'll hear about it in a second. But it's absolutely, no mistake, absolutely jam-packed with wisdom and, and just like incisive thinking. And the basic setup of the book is around a bunch of letters that, get this, are written from a senior demon to a junior demon. And it's all about how this junior demon was to go about wrecking the life and faith of a Christian that's been given to him. And they call this Christian his patient. Okay? So this senior demon's mentoring this junior demon on how to wreck this Christian's faith, this patient's faith. And each chapter in the book addresses a different kind of approach that this junior demon might need to use to, 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 to nail this Christian. And the 17th letter of this correspondence deals with the issue of gluttony. Just two fascinating points that I want to take from this letter. Firstly, the senior demon writes this as his opening sentence in chapter 17. He says to Wormwood, <laughs> the name of the junior demon, he says to the Wormwood, he says, the contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last years, hundred years, has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject so that but now you'll hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. And I'm sure we could add Africa and the rest of the world. That is so true. How is it that something that is targeted in both Scripture and the early church history as something of a serious sin, how is it that today, in many senses, gluttony has almost become a nothing, or certainly only a sin for that overweight bunch over there? I wonder, is it a sin that is now somehow through the years and because of our heart standards of living, is it a sin that has crept conveniently into the blind spot of our society? Second point that Lewis makes is that he changes the idea of gluttony from a sin of excess, eating too much, to a sin of delicacy. Sin of excess to a sin of delicacy, where a person's tastes becomes so refined and particular that her stomach still dominates and controls that person, just like that person who continuously eats food too much. So the senior demon points out, and he's referring to the patient's mother. Remember, the patient is this Christian he's trying to nail. He refers to the patient's mother, who he says is a great example of this, because what she wants is smaller and less costly, just a cup of tea, you know, weak but not too weak, and a crisp piece of toast. Is that too much to ask? Just because it's a small meal. She never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get exactly what she wants, however troublesome it is, or maybe to others. 
the sin of delicacy. See, folk, I think C.S. Lewis is right. The sin of gluttony covers much more ground than just a drive to eat too much. It's a gluttony of preference rather than a gluttony of food. Gluttony is not simply about eating excessively, but about giving our preferences too much room to move in our lives, our wants and our desires. And this is the critical part of the sermon, folk. We have to be clear on this. When our preferences and our appetites and our wants and our desires, which are all God-given things and at their best drive us towards healthy things, but when these things are elevated to a level that demands satisfaction, that dictates to the world that this is how it has to be and this is what I must have in order to be, for, for me to be complete and satisfied, then our appetites move from being something good and healthy to something that dominates our soul, even at the expense of people, and eventually, God himself. I believe gluttony is at the core of the word consumerism. I believe gluttony is at the core of, of that word entitlement. When consumerism takes us away from simply putting on our food on our tables and a roof over our heads and leads us instead through our shopping lists to destroy our environment and at times to forget our best character traits and morals, then it is nothing less than sin. Our want, therefore it must be delivered in the mountain, in the time and in the shape and in the way that I demand. And the consumer, all of us, are in danger of becoming a God in this world of ours and entitlement is the ugly face that gives evidence of that sin. I believe gluttony is at the core of that verse that says it is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the arva needle because gluttony replaces passions for God and the desire for the things of God with the strength of our own desires and wants. Listen to how Philippians 3 verse 19 and 20 describe this sin. It says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory, their expensive toys and crazy tastes, their glory is in their shame. And in this decisive, critical sentence, says very clearly their mind is on earthly things. Verse 20 then says, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, to bring this whole sermon into our series, through their uncontrolled and all-powerful appetites, they become citizens of this world rather than citizens of heaven because their own desires replace a God who loves them. And the great reminder and challenge of this series is to live as citizens of heaven. 
to, to ensure that our appetites reflect that truth. And folk, this isn't easy. You know, some sermons you end up preaching with a finger pointing straight back at you. This isn't easy. Avoiding this temptation, this sin, isn't easy. It's in us, isn't it? In our demands for little preferences. Unless things are this way, I've got permission to be grumpy and, you know, mean and nasty. Because my preferences weren't met. It's not only in us, it's around us. In the constant message that this new product is essential for your enjoyment in life. Folk, it's in our church. When we demand some things, more of this, less of that, you know, I wonder sometimes if our church would survive or how easily our church would survive if, if we had to get rid of the aircon and the lights. You know, folk, that's in the realm of preferences. That's not church. If our seating plan had to change, the type of coffee went back to Nescafe, served at the door. Folk, that is not what church is about. Those are preferences that always must be tempered and coached by a greater passion for the things of God. Those things are secondary and always will be nothing more than secondary. It's in our culture, this area, this thing. Did you know, and, and I couldn't find South African stats, but did you know America wastes approximately 40% of its food on an annual basis? $161 billion flushed down the toilets. Figures and food coached by gluttony, consumerism. It's not often that we play the eagles in our church. Um, some people may, may say it's an absolute pity, but that song, Hotel California, which is actually a song about the decadence in America. Some people say otherwise, I believe it to be true, about the decadence in America. That's at least from the, 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 the singers themselves, the artists themselves. They said that's what the story, that, that, that song is all about. Okay? And there's one stanza that describes the sin of gluttony and of consumerism brilliantly. Here's the problem. We can't play it for you because as soon as the sound goes online, we will get cut online because it's just not on. So I'm going to have to read the words to you, which is a complete second best. But if you can just get into that mindset, like right towards the end, these are the words that, that, that the singers sing. It says, mirrors on the ceiling... Pink champagne on us, and she said, We're all just prisoners here of our own device. And in the master's chambers, <laughs> they gathered for the feast. They stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. Last thing I remember, I was running for the door. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before. Relax, said the nightmen. We're all programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Powerful one-liners about consumerism. Prisoners here of our own device. We created this world and we feed this beast. They just can't kill the beast. 
We are programmed to receive in a very real sense. That is true. But that mustn't be the end of our story. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. This will always be present, a challenge that will follow us wherever we go. Folk, this is a tough sin to grapple with, a sin of gluttony. It's a tough sin to battle with. How then, obviously the big question is, how then do we become citizens of heaven, capital C? How do we become citizens of heaven in a world that is absolutely committed to this life and to our own tendencies that seem to be committed at times to this life as well? Well, there's just two things I want to put on the table. And the first thing I want to ask you to do is simply to meditate on this passage of Scripture that is behind us. When I say meditate, I mean think about it. You know, pray about it. Allow it to filter your soul and your thinking and your standards and your appetites. To say, God, won't you speak to me through this, this passage? Disciples urge Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Consume something. But he told them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And so the disciples asked one another, could someone have brought him food? And Jesus explained, folk, this is the critical verse. My food, my sustenance, my satisfaction is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And folk, as citizens of heaven, we have to discover and appreciate the depth of truth that Jesus is sharing here in this consumeristic world of ours. Our satisfaction cannot simply come from the offerings of this world. Our deepest joy, our greatest fulfillment is found in this food that many in this world know nothing about. It's a secret of joy. It's not in my toys or my accomplishments. It's in doing the will of the Father that I find true satisfaction. Second thing that I want to ask you to do. So the first one, meditate on that verse. Maybe go put it up on a mirror somewhere. Lord, become part of your DNA. Second thing, consider again taking the idea of God's spaces more seriously. If you remember a couple of months ago, maybe a year ago, we preached about God's spaces in our church. God's spaces are those spaces that we create in our lives in order to encounter God more richly. That's what a God's space is. Simple as that. So I want to encourage you, go to the space of fasting, that God space, the space of fasting. Go to it. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Folk, at the heart of fasting, we find the opportunity to deny ourselves. Deny your appetite. Deny your desire and your urge for more. Refocus on the things of God where we find our true satisfaction. Fast. 
Learn to say no to yourself. Learn to control your urges and your demands and your appetites. Learn to make those things subject to your list of priorities rather than defining of your list of priorities. Fast, so that increasingly the glitter and glam of what this world has to offer us fades and your tastes and hungers and sense of entitlement start to change and the significance and the beauty of the next world starts to draw your soul in because those things become more and more beautiful. Fast, because we dare not be flippant with the sin of gluttony that is so firmly embedded in the blind spot of so many of our lives. Fast so that our citizenship here on earth starts to diminish little by little, inch by inch, fast not only food but anything that might be grabbing your appetite at the moment. Fast until it becomes a God space in which you encounter Him and His priorities and His desires more and more. Start to take fasting more seriously. Move into the God space of fasting the God space of generosity. The heart of generosity is the act of giving of yourself, your gifts, your wealth, your time, your conversation, your life, the giving of that to somebody else. It's an investment that seeks to break the habit of continuously building our own shares here on earth. We've got to break that habit. And that is our primary goal in life. It seeks to break that habit that... that, that, that Seeks, seeks not to continuously build our own shares on us to a level that sometimes, in some cases, becomes almost ridiculous and extreme. But rather to invest in the unseen world through the needs of others, to unload our stuff, to give away freely what we call our own. Be generous because kingdom citizens know deep down the truth that it is better to give than to receive. That rings true to kingdom citizens. Be generous because although we are programmed to receive, as that song said, we know that the healing of our souls, of our communities, and of our world is found rather in the act of giving than in the, in the obsession of hoarding. Be generous because the act of generosity Paint some of the best pictures of love and grace that this world will ever see and that this world longs to discover. Be generous. Because I've seen people surprised by an encounter with the Almighty God when, when all they've done is extend an awkward hand or a hesitant hand to help people when they've chosen to become generous. You can find God in that moment. Move into the God space of fasting, generosity, and how about simplicity too? Move into these God spaces, simplicity. Simplicity kills gluttony at its source. Simplicity confirms for us that life isn't found in the accumulation of goods. Simplicity highlights the significance of things that are within the grasp of every living person, rest, love, kindness, beauty accessible to everybody. Simplicity reminds us of that. Maybe that's the gift that many of us will experience 
during this time of financial challenge in COVID. The beauty of simplicity. Simplicity reminds us that Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head, and yet he was utterly fulfilled in life. Simplicity, simplicity says, I need little. I can choose less in order to find more in God. Ask the worship team just to come up as we wrap up here. We're going to sing that song that we learned early, earlier because there's one line that speaks the heart of the sermon. I'm going to ask you to look out for that line this next time we sing it. It talks about ashes. Pick up on what that says there. But our world, our world, I believe, is longing for a feast that never ends, you know, a meal that constantly accommodates our preferences and our desires. Folk, this is not the way to the kingdom of God. Our longing for God, our satisfaction in Him above everything else will always separate us from a world that is bringing, that is binging on the things of this world. Oh, may your life and my life be filled with that simple prayer, that defining prayer. May it run deep in our souls that simply says, Lord, less of me and my appetites and my desires, less of me and more of you, God. More of you. Amen.